on today's show, just one week into the federal election campaign, and things seem to be going quite well for the Conservatives. Polling shows them eliminating any lead that the Liberals have. Also today, extremist groups actively recruiting military and police members, and the loss of a legend. Charlie Watts, the Rolling Stone drummer, passing away at the age of 80. So we're only a week into this campaign, and we don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves, right? But take a look at where we are, and I think a lot of people are surprised. As I said, Aaron O'Toole and the Conservatives have surprised me. Uh, They've done a much better job on this campaign than I expected. He has not impressed me as leader prior to this campaign, but a couple of things he said and done made me think, "Eh, maybe this guy does have what it takes, after all. Um, Ryan sending a text saying, I'm a center voter. I've voted Liberal in every election since I was 18 until 2019, but I bought a Conservative Party membership just to vote for O'Toole in the leadership race. He represents the common sense that the Liberals have lost and would make a wonderful Prime Minister. Another listener says, I went into this election feeling quite torn and undecided as to who to vote for. But as a moderate Conservative, after years of being disillusioned with the Conservatives, I have to say I'm strongly considering Aaron O'Toole as my choice for Prime Minister. I did not see this coming. And we have talked on this show about how unimpressive he was to the majority of Canadians. But now here we are a week in, and the latest polling shows maybe we were all wrong because he has made some massive strides in the first week. So to break down this new polling, we're going to chat with Sean Simpson, who is vice president of Ipsos Public Affairs and put together this poll. Sean, thanks for your time. Appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. Um, To me, as a guy who's watched politics for a while, this seems like a pretty major shift and a pretty quick one. Very early in the campaign, we're seeing the Liberals gassing the five-point lead they brought into this race and now basically in a dead heat with the Conservatives. Yeah, they've they've squandered their their lead. Uh, The Prime Minister called an election uh, and then failed to articulate why it was uh, necessary for us to go to the polls during a, a pandemic. They tried to make a wedge issue out of vaccine passports, didn't really work. They tried to make a wedge issue out of abortion. So O'Toole went to Quebec and said, here's what I believe. Uh, there, it sort of essentially had the perfect counterattack to everything that the, that the Liberals and the Prime Minister are trying to do. Uh, and, you know, all along, I don't necessarily think that O'Toole was suffering from uh, being disliked. He was suffering from not being known. Uh, you know, the Prime Minister has taken up all the airtime over the last 18 months as a result of the pandemic, and perhaps rightly so. Mm-hmm. The, the, the Canadians were rallying behind him. Now there's an election. It's a time for us to pay a little bit more attention to the leader of the uh, uh, of the opposition. And so far, Canadians appear to be quite open to considering him. And in fact, uh, he's he's done a quite a remarkable feat in week one and, and closed the gap. He sure has. Now we're talking about national numbers here, but when you break this down further, especially when you go into Ontario, I'm I'm blown away by what your numbers are telling us. Walk us through Ontario. Yeah. Well, Ontario just last week was showing an eight-point lead for the Liberals, which is about what they had uh, in 2019 as a result of the election. So essentially nothing has changed. Now, just this week, we see the Conservatives ahead by four. That in in and of itself is enough to cost Liberals their plurality in the House of Commons, meaning that the Conservatives might have a shot at uh, at forming government, all other things staying staying equal. So a remarkable turnaround that obviously gives them strength in the 905, which are those key swing ridings around Toronto that uh, really often end up uh, uh, influencing who's going to form the government. The other thing that's remarkable is in Alberta, 
uh, the conservatives were really struggling uh, before the campaign, down in the in the thirties, only you know five points ahead of the NDP, actually, uh, who was the second uh, place party federally within within Alberta. He's managed to right that ship. The uh, uh, conservatives back at their sort of natural level, which is about fifty percent of the vote within uh, within the province. So really uh, managed to shore up support there. Um, and you know the trick is obviously without uh, trying to shore up support without alienating the the the, the further right uh, elements within the party so far so good but you know cracks may be forming yeah exactly one other thing i found really really interesting for the first time since what 17 years i think or something like that the leader of the liberals is seen as the most untrustworthy federal leader uh trudeau really taking a hit on you know how much faith people put in what he has to say yeah, um, when he was first elected in 2015, people acknowledged that he was uh, more style than substance, uh, but that was okay. You know, uh, Stephen Harper was maybe the antithesis, uh, more substance than certainly style. Uh, so Canadians were ready for that change. But at some point, the style gets old. That which people mm-hmm. liked about you at the start becomes the thing that they dislike about you uh, later on. Uh, so I think Canadians now examining whether or not uh, he's the, the person to, to lead us forward. We'll take a look at O'Toole, we'll take a look at Singh, and uh, and, and see where we net out. But this uh, this campaign is going to be anything but boring, and we've got a good old-fashioned horse race on our hands now. Yeah, no kidding. Neck and neck. Really interesting. It's early, as I said, Shani. Don't want to get ahead of yourselves, but if you're a conservative, you got to be feeling pretty good about the way it's gone the first week. Yeah, you do. But, uh, you know, one of the things that we're seeing with conservative uh, support at the moment, which isn't typical, is that uh, they don't appear to be that enthusiastic just yet, meaning that the Tories often receive a ballot box bonus because their voters are most likely to go out and vote. We're not seeing that yet. There's Mm -hmm. some softness there. Maybe uh, the more socially conservative elements of the party are not uh, thrilled with O'Toole, and obviously they don't really have too many other places to go if they're not considering Bernier or maybe the Maverick Party. They may just stay home instead of casting their ballot for O'Toole. Uh, as the, the, the race uh, is, is closer, they may feel that their vote counts a little bit more than maybe it did before, and they may, as a result, be more likely to show up and vote on Election Day. Very interesting. Appreciate the insight, Sean. Thank you for joining us today. My pleasure. Sean Simpson, who is the Vice President of Ipsos Public Affairs. You know, when you take a look, and and I speak out against the fringe and the extremist point of views um, on this show as often as I can, I think it's something that uh, we see creeping up more and more. It's something that we see becoming more and more commonplace, and they get more and more exposure, and they get more and more airtime, and um, they make more noise. Um, they're a very small group. I understand that. But at the same time, it it seems to be growing. It seems to be getting bigger and, uh, we don't need it. We don't want it. We shouldn't have it. Um, and a newly declassified Canadian intelligence report confirms that, you know, what people have thought for a very, very long time is in fact occurring. Extremist groups actively are recruiting members of the armed forces and law enforcement in our country. Um, both active and retired members of the forces and the police ranks uh, to join up with their groups. Obviously, the concern is there. We've seen what these groups can do, in fact, have done, uh, and it's something that the Canadian forces at least are trying to get on top of. So let's get some details on exactly what's happening. Joining us, we have Dr. Christian Luprecht, who is a national security expert, class of 1965 professor at the Royal Military College, 
and a professor in the Department of Political Science and Economics at Queen's. Uh, Doctor, thanks for your time this morning. Always a delight to chat with you. Good morning. Always a pleasure. So this report that came out, I don't think it comes as a surprise, but at the same time, it's very concerning as we learn that these groups are, you know, they've made it a goal to try and recruit members of the forces and law enforcement to join the ranks. Yeah, so we saw this pattern evolve in the United States maybe a dozen years ago. Um, you remember, you know, you and I growing up, you would have sort of these drive-by shootings and people would spray bullets. Mm-hmm. Um, and it would make the news, you know, on the local radio station and uh, and people would be all up in arms. And then all of a sudden, we noticed that there were no drive-by shootings of that sort. Rather, when there was a drive-by shooting, it would be one hit, uh, and that hit would take out the target. And so uh, then law enforcement and security intelligence started to track in the U.S. what's going on here. And it turned out that um, the organized crime groups were intentionally either recruiting former military or looking to get their own members into military training because they're effectively outsourcing their training to the organizations that have been doing it for decades and do it best. And so you learn how to actually uh, handle, uh, handle a weapon properly and so forth. So that's one part of the challenge that uh, you are fa- the, the, the military is a key institution in the state's monopoly of violence uh, that uh, defines a modern state, um, and it obviously has considerable capabilities uh, on the on the on the combat side. So people learn how to handle weaponry and so forth. So that's one of the challenges. Another is that uh, the military is often said to have a bit of a selection effect. So that is to say, militaries are meant to uh, represent societies broadly as citizen soldiers, but uh, they're often a sort of uh, perhaps some individuals. St- that that it appeals to that tend to be more small c conservative perhaps um disproportionately whether that's true in the Canadian military or not that's certainly sort of uh the uh, the perception and some of the metrics that we have from other militaries so they might see it also as a more fertile sort of uh recruiting cra- ground for um uh for themselves uh, but it's also i think a more broadly sort of a test to the extent to which uh, those institutions in our society that have disproportionate power, so policing, uh, but uh, inherently also uh, the uh, the armed forces, uh, to try to, I think, undermine the legitimacy of those institutions by trying to find sympathizers and sympathies with causes that are fundamentally undemocratic, because, look, the Canadian armed forces are tasked with defending um, the values, norms, priorities, interests that the elected democratic government has set. And these are institutions that clearly these organizations that don't adhere to those same values. And so it's, of course, critically important that the military not just defend those values, but that it represents those values. And so this is sort of why any attempt to recruit within the organization is problematic, because it signals that there may be individuals who may have signed up to defend those values, but uh, who themselves do not actually believe uh, in or reflect those values in the way that they have been defined and mandated by the government of the day. A lot to get into there. One one of the things that you mentioned and I wanted to get to was, yes, these groups are actively recruiting, uh, trying to get 
current members of the forces or retired members of the forces to join their ranks. But at the same time, and you, and you pointed this out, they're actually signing up as reservists and joining the military and stuff. And as you said, basically outsourcing their training uh, and acquiring these uh, lethal skills basically through the military, knowing full well that the end goal is to bring those skills back to their extremist group, whatever that may be. So for counterintelligence in the military, when you do your security vetting, there's three separate problems. So one is trying to identify people who might have nefarious grounds on which they're intending to join the military to begin with, and so a proper vetting in the recruitment process. The second are people who might either shift their opinions while they're in the organization or might be particularly susceptible to recruitment, Uh, people who are, for instance, frustrated with the organization or who... Uh, on social media or so, express frustrations mm-hmm. with certain policies pursued by the government. Uh, and of course, for instance, Corey Hearn, uh, the uh, Manitoban who drove to Ottawa um, last summer and uh, in, in an attempt to, uh, quotation marks, arrest the prime minister with a series of unauthorized weapons or so, uh, he would fall sort of in that category of people who, uh, who shifted and to then sort of become vulnerable and demonstrate that vulnerability on social media. And the third are people who were tired out of the organization, but who, for instance, might feel that more broadly, in their view, society is not going in the right direction, and so they sympathize for one reason or another um, uh, with those organizations. And it might not even be for ideological affinity. I mean, the military is a very tight-knit organization, and so sometimes when people release from the military, they miss that camaraderie. They miss that sort of tight-knit uh, friendship and people that they're, uh, that they're close to, and so then they end up seeking that sort of connection um, among institutions, you know, that, uh, that, that some of these right-wing sort of militia groups uh, try to replicate precisely because they know they can appeal to individuals who otherwise might be lonely and who appreciate uh, that sort of camaraderie and who in return can then be gradually socialized into the extreme anti-democratic views that some of these organizations not just hold, but are prepared to resort to violence to defend. And that's ultimately, of course, the problem that in a democracy, we've agreed not to use violence to advance um, political views uh, and particular political points that we're trying to make. And uh, these are organizations that fundamentally violate uh, that premise of our social contract. And I guess the obvious concern here, I think it's a apparent to anybody listening to this is you know when, when we, we see pictures of some of these protests and these and these gatherings and things like that typically you see the guys with you know the baseball helmets and the bear spray and you know the the, the walmart weekend warrior kit uh they're out cosplaying soldier but when you start to inject actual trained military members and law enforcement members with the knowledge and the skills and the expertise that they bring that dynamic, while it's dangerous but without them, becomes infinitely more so when you bring that element into it. And that's what you saw on January 6th, right? So this is why a relatively small group of protesters could do such disproportionately harm um, at U.S. Congress because they were organized, they had intelligence, they had maps, uh, they weren't just acting as a ragtag team, they had organized groups, uh, they had plans of how they were going to infiltrate and how they were going to act, they had sorted out their targets once they were inside, so they used military, um, not just the ability, for instance, to handle weapons, but the entire sort of uh, training, uh, planning, 
surveillance, intelligence, reconnaissance process to ensure mission success, as the military might call it. And so um, there are very specific elements of training that members in uniform receive so that they can, um, they can be effective in the challenging and dangerous circumstances in, into which we send them. Imagine if, you know, the airlift that's being organized out of Afghanistan, people kind of showed up and they, were, they had to figure out yeah. sort of how we actually going to plan this whole operation or so. I mean, it would take months, right? So these people, those folks are trained in a very standard way so that you can insert them and they might have never met themselves before, but they can all work together because they've been all trained to work, for instance, according to the, to train an operation according to the operational planning process. And so they all now know how to proceed. And so transferring, not just being able to have those skills, but then when you have members ex- join extremist organizations where they might be able to transfer even some of those skills, that in inherency is also danger because you can have, as a result, relatively small groups of people doing disproportionate amounts of damage. But let's keep in mind, I mean, empirically, we've had in Canada over the years not quite a dozen different individuals um, who have, in one way or another, ended up being charged or ended up being released from the Canadian Armed Forces uh, due to um, forms of expressions or actions that were incompatible. So this is not a um, this this is not a large scale problem right. in the Canadian Armed Forces, but we do, of course, have evidence to this effect, and it does appear to be a growing for- problem, not just in Canada but across. Uh, other allied countries, the Australians have a similar challenge, and of course the U.S. has a uh, um, appears to have a significant challenge on its hand. Uh, and so I think this is more a, a matter of making sure that we are aware of the threats that those institutions that we have to defend our rule of law and our democracy are facing in terms of infiltration uh, and the transfer of skills and training for uh, the advancement of purposes that are run, fundamentally run counter to our democratic values. And the Canadian um, forces acknowledge that this is something they're well aware of and actively working to try and prevent. What kind of things are they doing? You know, as you say, it's a growing problem and they recognize that and they admit that and they know it's an issue. So what are they doing to try and make sure that this kind of activity doesn't happen and they're not essentially taken advantage of? So there's a fairly extensive background check on individuals who want to join the Canadian Armed Forces. I mean, that doesn't catch uh, anything or and 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 everyone, but it is quite uh, it's quite rigorous. Um, so trying to catch uh, these types of uh, these types of attitudes um, um, or people who themselves might pose a risk, for instance, to uh, even basic things like, do you have a disproportionate amount of debt that might make you susceptible to manipulation by outside mm-hmm. forces or outside organizations? Um, then you run, of course, counterintelligence on your units. Um, there's uh, the there's considerable opportunity also in the open source realm, you know, people posting on social media or so um, that uh, that might end up showing up with uh, with comments. Um, the, the, the awareness of people to be able to report um, to military police and uh, the National Investigation Service uh, any conduct or, or apprehensions they might have about uh, about some of their colleagues or uh, how they might be uh, might be expressing themselves. And for veterans groups, I mean, t- this is part of the reason. You know, it's it, there's many reasons why we make sure we have a we have a robust veterans um, organization in this country. Um, but, but to make sure that uh, that veterans don't end up falling in with the wrong crowd and that we have, you know, it's part of 
what the military does to make sure it cares properly uh, for its people, um, that the military family um, remains accessible to them even when they retire out of the force so they don't go looking for uh, their luck with uh, other organizations that try to replicate that feeling for nefarious purposes. Yeah, it's a fascinating situation. Doctor, I appreciate your time this morning. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you. That is Dr. Christian Luprecht, who is a national security expert and a professor at a couple of different schools, including the Royal Military College and Queen's University. All right, 780-496-0063-403-974-8255. See a couple of calls, uh, people wanting to weigh in on Charlie Watts and talk about the OEG's announcement on vaccines for Euler games, much like the Flames announced yesterday. But before we do that, uh, you just heard the legendary Charlie Watts, who passed away today at the age of 80, um, one of the original members of the Rolling Stones, along with um, Mick Jagger and Keith Richards and Bill Wyman, Jones, um, Passing away at the age of 80. So we're going to get some insight uh, with the guy who uh, knows more about music than anybody I've ever talked to before, Alan Cross, who is host of the Ongoing History of New Music. Alan, thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate your time. Yeah, I, I, I had a feeling that something was wrong back earlier this month when it was announced that Charlie yeah. wasn't going to be touring with the Rolling Stones later this year. Uh, this is a guy who joined the band in January 1963 and never missed a single gig <laughs> in that entire time. So uh, this is a guy who had a series of substance abuse issues in the 80s that he beat. Yep. Then there was uh, the throat cancer scare in 2004, which he beat. Uh, and then uh, for him not to tour, it's like, whoa, something's... I mean, you know, he was 80 years old, yep. but he did specify that there was some kind of medical condition. At the time, though, Alan, they said... Charlie's going to be fine. He just needs time to recover. He can't come out on tour. He just needs time to recover. So they didn't lead on at all that it was something anywhere near this serious. No, no, no. I, I, I when, it, when it popped up on my phone, it was like, what? Really? How? No, can't be. It's Charlie. And, yeah. and, you know, he was, you know, compared to the rest of the Rolling Stones, he was probably, you know, the healthiest. He's been, you know, that's a relative term. <laughs> exactly. But, uh, you know, and, and he was, uh, again, 80 years old. But, not the guy that you would expect to go first. No. Um, we know it's not going to be Keith. No, no. Keith, uh, <laughs> listen, Keith is a cockroach. He'll be with us for, for hundreds of years. Yeah, he'll outlive all of us. Yes. When we take a look at Charlie, though, um, you know, 60 years almost playing for the Rolling Stones, but that was never his first love. He was a jazz musician through and through. Where does he fit in the pantheon of rock and roll legends, especially behind the kit like Charlie was? Where does he fit in terms of greatness? Okay, so he was one of the, he was a member of, he was the drummer for one of the greatest rock and roll bands of all time. So there's there's the Beatles, there's the Stones, there's the Led Zeppelin, yep. there's a few others, and, and he's, okay, so right there. Um, secondly, he was never flashy, nope. but he was very tasteful. So he was the kind of guy that, you know, Keith or Mick could look at him and say, here, Charlie, do this. And, and he could do it because even though he wasn't flashy, he was extraordinarily skilled and he was restrained with his playing. And that allowed, uh, guys like Keith Richards, 
and Mick Jagger and Mick Taylor and Ron Wood and, and you know to a certain extent Bill Wyman to dance around with songs, knowing full well that Charlie would keep the beats, and even if they got lost in, in, in their improvisations and their riffing and their soloing, they could, it didn't matter because Charlie kept it solid. So. I remember being in a band years ago, and uh, the guitar player turned around at me and looked. He says, you know who the best drummer in the world is? Who? Charlie Watts. Keep the beat. <laughs> and, and and that's what he is uh, known for. Is, is again, it's tasteful, uh, not terribly flamboyant, nope. but also quite skillful. You know, and you take a look at, you know, where he fits in. And like I said, you know, you, you talk about the great drummers, your John Bonhams and things like that. Charlie's name doesn't often come up, but... Like you say, when you're talking about the number one job of a drummer, and when you're dealing with a Mick Jagger and a Keith Richards and those kind of guys, he he was sort of the glue that held it all together. Yeah, I mean, I, I've seen the Stone up, the Stones a million times, and Keith is you know off doing something, oh, and you know you know Ron is trying to Ronnie is trying to trying to you know kind of keep Keith in line, uh, and sometimes he can do it, but it always comes back to Charlie. Always comes back to, to him and his ability to to hold everything together and to keep it from flying apart. I remember watching them on uh, Saturday Night Live years ago, and they played uh, Shattered, mm-hmm. and it was completely shambolic, except for Charlie. And the reason it could be shambolic was Charlie. I wonder, and I don't know, maybe it's just the impression that I got. I've seen him live a few times, and I've seen a million different video performances and things like that. And I've always known that Charlie's first love was jazz. And as soon as the Stones were off the road, he'd run into the jazz clubs and yep. play with the jazz musicians. I always got the impression that Charlie saw this almost as a job, playing with the Rolling Stones. The rest of the guys, it was their lives. But for Charlie, it was something he did to fund and allow him to do the, all the other things. Am I right or am I wrong? Did he love being part of the Stones? He did. He didn't like touring. I mean, as, as early as the 1980s, he was saying, you know what, I'm getting tired of this. I'm getting too old for this. I don't want to do it anymore. But then uh, Michael Cole, the Canadian promoter, comes along in 1989 and creates the Steel Wheels Tour, and that pretty much brings the Stones back from from the brink. And uh, they've been a going concern ever since. And, you know, the money is just, the, the money is just insane. I mean, oh. you know, a Stones tour, you know, up until recently was, was guaranteed $500 million at the box office. So that's just, you know, that's just too you can't much. say no. <laughs> no. And, and he had a, a, a penchant. His, his big vice was collecting cars. He uh, had a very, very interesting collection of vintage automobiles, yet no driver's license, which is fascinating. <laughs> hey, while I've got you, uh, we're talking about Charlie Watts, but we uh, it's perfect timing to ask you about um, Don Everly. Uh, when you want to talk about the founders and the guys who influenced people like the Rolling Stones, uh, we lost one of them this week, too. Right. So, you know, Phil died. His brother died in 2014. Yep. So Don goes uh, earlier this week. The Everly brothers were one of the uh, the two main influences on the Beatles. Yes, that's right. You know, the other being the other being Buddy Holly. Uh, they were absolutely. You know, the Beatles worked on the harmonies that they had, which you know became one of the most famous and most glorious harmonies in the history of music. Uh, by trying to imitate Phil and Don Everly, mm-hmm. so that and you know Paul McCartney was you know to this day believes that uh, they were the best harmonizing vocal group ever ever created. 
So it's another one of those weeks where guys of a certain age, and I, I'm not even 50 yet, but these people have been a constant presence in my life. And we're coming to the realization, I think, and I just got a text from a buddy saying, you know what? We're getting old because the guys that have constantly been there and the people that we've looked up to and loved for so long, they're starting to leave us, Alan. Yeah, and I've said this before. Uh, over the next five years, we are going to see a mass extinction of these people. Of the legends. I mean, Paul McC- yeah, you know, Paul and Ringo are, are, are way up there. Bob Dylan is way up there. Uh, Mick, you know, he had the heart problems yes, a couple yeah. of years ago, but seemed to bounce back. Roger Waters, a pink point, he's 77. I think David Gilmore's 75. And remember that these guys lived through the peak, the greatest sex, drugs, and rock oh, and roll yeah. period in the history of humanity. So, I mean, you know, what are their livers like? What are their arteries like? What are their hearts and spleens like? Yeah, a lot of miles. Yeah, a lot of miles. A lot. So it's, you know, Bowie wasn't supposed to die. I mean, uh, this is just, yeah. Enjoy them while you still can. And if they come through town, get out and see them. Yes, yes, yes. Great stuff. Thank you, Alan, for your time. All right, you're welcome. Appreciate it. It's Alan Cross, a legendary um, radio announcer and uh, documenteur of rock and roll. Uh, Going back to the 80s. He's been doing it a long, long time. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.